Before we start this episode, we recorded this before the February 2019 allegations against Zach Smith. We were in two minds about what to do about this episode, whether to re-edit it and take the content with him out. We thought we'd let it stand, but obviously, if this is the kind of thing that you'd really rather not listen to, then just be warned that we do include some interviews with Zach in this. And we obviously do not in any way support him or his ongoing work from this stage. Here's a Japanese man sneaking on with a tune. Just an old second Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Norwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode I'm going to be talking about Gen Con 2018 and also talking to some of the people that I met at the convention. But before you make us hate you completely, let's take a look at what's going on. I hear something's going down at Alexandra Palace in September. Yeah, Paul and I will be going to the Tabletop Gaming Live event down there. We'll be running demo games for Chaosium, uh, obviously of Call of Cthulhu, and we will also be taking part in a panel. Yes, entitled Calling Cthulhu. Let's hope we're successful. Mm -hmm. And if you've never played Call of Cthulhu before, come along and join in a demo game, as Scott said. So, um, Tabletop Gaming Live is run by the Tabletop Gaming Magazine, and it's going to be going down on the 29th of September. And our seminar will be at 12 noon. And I see that Stygian Fox has released two new books recently. Well, at least one that Matt and I were both involved with, mm-hmm. and one, one that I was. Uh, so the first one was Fear's Sharp Little Needles. Yeah, it's uh, 26 scenarios in the end, I think, isn't it? Yeah, um, 25 short and one long scenario, all pretty much designed to be played in one sitting, with quite a long cast of names in there, some nice contributors that they had on the project. Yeah, and these are all modern-day Call of Cthulhu scenarios designed for a single evening's play. And Puncture Wounds is the accompanying short story collection, which has got my first bit of published fiction for God knows how many years in it. So, um, yeah, yeah, hope you like it. (laughs) Now, Scott's been on another trip, Matt. Who the hell let him out of his box? I know. He's been to a convocation of wizards. Or warlocks, I should say, more accurately, I believe. (laughs) Of course, Um, who, who would they invite other than Gandalf? Well, yeah, Hagrid, I don't know. So, Scott, what was this uh, gathering of warlocks that you attended in Cheltenham recently? Yeah, I mean, f- forget about Gen Con. Mm. Yeah, and this they, is where it's at, right? <laughs> yeah, so, so no, no, I, this was the Grand Tribunal in Cheltenham, which started out as a convention for Ars Magica, as the name might imply, and then grew into a, a large convention for Atlas Games in general. And now it's, it seems to have spread out even further than that, and it's become an all-encompassing game convention. It's, it's still fairly small, and the focus is still very much on Ars Magica. But I, I went along, I ran Call of Cthulhu, I ran Pulp Cthulhu, I ran Unknown Armies. I met a lot of people I hadn't met at other conventions before. Right? People who'd travelled from all over the place, um, from particularly from Norway. It, it runs every year. If you can make it next year, I highly recommend it. So I want to say thank you very much to our friend CJ Romo for inviting me along to it and, and putting me up for the weekend. As long as it doesn't clash with Necronomicon next year, which it might do sadly, um, I shall definitely be back. And now on to our main topic, Gen Con 2018. 
Well then, Paul, I think this is going to be mostly down to you, because as, as we have mentioned, Matt and I didn't go. Were you not there? No. No, I wasn't. Oh, okay. All right. Well... <laughs> so I, I went out with Mike Mason and the two of us went to a few events. One of the first was the Diana Jones Award. Now, this is an interesting award. It gets given each year to something that's kind of innovative and new in the sphere of role playing. And this year, rather than going to a particular book or a particular show, it went to actual play. So they awarded an award to a concept. Yeah. So there were some guys from an actual play podcast there to pick up the award. But, you know, I guess it kind of goes to everybody who's done actual play. So, so that means that Matt and I can put ourselves down as recipients of the Diana Jones Award. Indeed, yes. Well, there we go, Matt. Hey. We're, we're award winners. High five! You get a timeshare of it, maybe. <laughs> About three seconds, probably, given all the people that <laughs> do actual play. But. Do you want to explain to our listeners what the Diana Jones Award actually is? So the Diana Jones Award is a perspex pyramid embedded in the resin of which is the, like the, the last holy fragment of a copy of a game that was burnt, the Indiana Jones or Indiana Jones role-playing game. But all that's left are the words Diana Jones. So it's a kind of a curious thing. But anyway, this gets given out every year to, you know, to some worthy uh, person or, or concept, apparently. <laughs> Yeah, the Indiana Jones role-playing game, I, I, I remember, was notorious for... Well, it was notorious for a few things, uh, like the fact that you could only play canon characters in it. There were no character generation rules. Um, but one of the things that TSR did uh, was they put trademarks on the names of all the characters on the, the printed cardboard miniatures that came with it. And one of them was a generic Nazi so you had this this TSR miniature that just said Nazi TM at the bottom. Oh, that's of it. where that comes yeah. from. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then on the Saturday, I was on a panel with Mike entitled "The Cool of Cthulhu," which was run and hosted by Michael O'Brien of Chaosium, and this featured the two of us plus James Lauder, the fiction editor for Call of Cthulhu, and this time Chris Spivey and Sam Riordan. Now, these two people we're going to talk to in a little while. Chris Spivey, well known as the author of Harlem Unbound. And I had the pleasure of catching up with him and talking about Harlem Unbound and his Any Awards. Okay, well, I'm joined by Chris Spivey of Darker Hue Studios um, to talk about Gen Con and Harlem Unbound. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Paul. I'm glad to be here. Well, it's my pleasure. Now, I understand this was your second Gen Con. No, I've been uh, going to Gen Con since 2012. Oh, my mistake. And I started running games at Gen Con probably around 2013. And I used to be part of the U2 Can Cthulhu crew, and I every, I'd had one of their slots, and I'd run a Black Letter qualifier every year, then take part in the uh, Black Letter game. Oh, man. Okay. So I'm finding out a lot of stuff here. So do you know who I also talked to today? Only Bob Geis. Bob may have shot me a text about his excitement about being being interviewed. <laughs> <laughs> okay cool oh i did not know you were part of his group that's fantastic so how was your gen con this time obviously i'm guessing a bit of a different experience this time right uh my gen con was fabulous uh 
getting to win three innings for Holman Bound, which is my passion project, was incredible. And winning the uh, any Groundbreaker Award from the IGDN was also incredible. Yeah, I mean, you were one of the stars of the show. And every time... Harlem Unbound and, and you were mentioned in the Ennis, it like rose the, the biggest cheer from the crowd. I kind of wish that would go through my daily life and people would do that everywhere I go. <laughs> they don't do that? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> you need to fix that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, as you said, three gold Ennis, best cover, best setting, best writing. That's hard to beat. Would you like to just give our listeners, you know, the two or three people who don't know what Harlem Unbound is, maybe? Those who have been living under a rock, I'm sure, no, seriously, I'm sure there are some people who are out there who, you know, they generally don't really know much about it. So would you like to give them a, a, an elevator pitch, if you like? Sure. Harlem Unbound is Lovecraftian horror set during the Harlem Renaissance, and it flips the Lovecraft standard on its head by having the primary protagonists all be people of color, LGBTQ, immigrants from other countries, and making them sort of the heroic aspects of the game as a battle the mythos and at the same time deal with the human evil and oppression of the time and how do you bring that to the fore in the book you know obviously you you can cast those people as um, protagonists and and so on are there other methods that you can bring those issues in um part of it's done through the artwork in the book a lot of rpgs when they're doing their artwork they have all of the pictures or images of people primarily are usually sort of a Caucasian appearance and that starts sort of like reinforces itself to people for Harlem bound. All of the, a lot of the images are African-American. They're also done in a style reminiscent of the Harlem Renaissance itself. So it brings to mind like Aaron Douglas, who is an incredible artist. And when you see that, and that's sort of like reinforced to you as you view through the book, coupled with the fact that I had a very frank discussion about race in the book addressing back then and current day is it still very prevalent in our society i i was doing a little bit of research i have to hold my hands up and say i don't actually own a copy yet i will get a copy but um you need to get so one fast I, yeah <laughs> well i may just hold out for the second edition right <laughs> um there are going to be some substantial differences between the two so um, i would say get both but that just could okay. be uh my marketing <laughs> no that's fair enough that's fair enough um but are there um some mechanical kind of reinforcement around the around the issues that you talked about or am i mistaken on that no so for me it was really important that while i'm talking about race and racism and the different oppression and it's a very sensitive topic and a lot of people aren't necessarily used to dealing with it if it's not something that you have to encounter on a daily basis i wanted to make sure that it was open and as comfortable as this topic could be. And so I introduced a racial tension modifier, which provides a actual mechanical element in the game itself that while the keeper is sort of running you through a session scenario and you're dealing with all the different impacts of that, they will then say potentially take a penalty die or an extra spend to do this action. And you as a player understand on like a mechanical level that, all right, he's, the keeper doesn't have a problem with me. We're still in the game, and this mechanical thing is sort of a neutralizer for both of us that separates us from this while still exposing us to it and forcing us to think about it. And in the um, the Call of Cthulhu panel, I noted that you said that you came to Lovecraft through reading his fiction, or rather you came to Call of Cthulhu perhaps through reading Lovecraft's fiction. Yes. 
I was at a, I was at an estate sale with which an estate sale in Alabama was a group of us kids around thirteen to fifteen were having to clean out a dead person's home and we had to stay there for the night and one of the possessions they had was the complete works of Lovecraft. And so we're a bunch of kids and teenagers. So we all sort of stayed in the same room upstairs. And in the wee hours of the night, I started reading the book and I couldn't put it down. And everyone else was asleep. And every noise I heard, I had to look and make sure there was nothing over there. And it just really engaged with me. The concept of the cosmic horror and the hopelessness of humanity sort of really spoke to someone growing up as an African-American male in Alabama. Hold it right there, because that sounds like a pitch for a Netflix series akin to Stranger Things already. You know, you're, you're a bunch of kids in a 13, 15. Uh, well, let me say trademark right now. <laughs> you're on bikes as well, right? Tell me. <laughs> Some people had bikes. I mean, you must have also encountered the racism in his stories. Yes. You know, I'm interested to note that that, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you found that off-putting, but it didn't put you off wholly. Well, for for me, I can look at the time when it was written, and I'm not excusing it, but I can put part of it aside for a small period of time to read and engage with the material itself. But if you want to discuss Lovecraft himself, then I will go and I'll be forthright and tell you that he was racist even for his time and a lot of other isms are associated with him oh absolutely and anyone that tells you otherwise is lying to you yeah yeah no for sure and you touched upon the second edition that chaosium are going to be putting out of harlem unbound is there a little more you can say about that uh i i think so i i don't think they'll they'll pull the plug on me now <laughs> uh so one of the things that i did is i went back and i talked to all the original writers and i've asked them to sort of update some of their sections because now that they've seen what the full book looks like and what i think of its importance they want to either tweak or augment some of their work. So there should be an enhancement to, for instance, the history section. I've also reached out to some new writers to bring in some new scenarios for the book. It's going to have anywhere from two to four new scenarios. Oh, wow. And okay. more artwork. And even before uh, Chaosium reached out about doing the second edition, I'd already started working on the back end to have some more maps generated because I, I read all the reviews and... I saw that people really, really love their maps. And so I wanted to make sure they had maps. And now that second edition is coming out, I want to make sure all those maps I'd already started collecting are also in this edition of the book. Oh, sweet. Uh, just to sum up, you're getting updated sections. You're getting new scenarios. You're getting new art. Um, you may even get an updated mechanic. And I may do a few tweaks on the section where I spoke very frankly about racism. And... Also, I hear rumors that you're working on another game or campaign for Chaosium. <laughs> Are you allowed to talk about that? I mean, I think it's public knowledge or not. Uh, yes, I actually have, I have two outstanding uh, engagements with Chaosium. The first one I'm super excited about. It's something that I pitched to Jeff and Mike uh, a couple of years ago. And it's superheroes versus the mythos using the... Pulp Cthulhu mechanics, and it's a modern day campaign. I've created an entire new mechanic to Superpowers work. All the playtesting that I've been doing has gone great. Everyone seems to love the new mechanic, and it's gonna it's gonna be super powered and gritty. 
Nice. Okay. That sounds pretty cool. <laughs> and it's it's called Redacted because Mike won't let me tell you what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I won't push you any further. And the other the other project that's a little bit further down the road that I actually have an open call for creatives, um, writers, artists, is Chaosium is going to let me do a science fiction line for them. It's an idea that I had that I actually ran a prototype test at Gen Con a few years ago. And it went very well. They like the pitch for it. And the first wave of things is going to be the core book, a campaign book, and a keeper's pack. Sweet. So, but that's a, that's a little way down the line? That's, that's after the supers. Which, if Mike is listening, you will have that in November, Mike. <laughs> if, if not, I swear that I'll never drink another scotch again. So next year you'll be at Gen Con again. So maybe with something new, but you know things in the pipeline anyway. Uh, hopefully next year at Gen Con I will be able to run the Supers game officially. This year I had um, a secret playtest of the Supers game with a couple of the people from the Miskatonic University podcast, some Gnome Stew crew, and a couple of friends. Well, I'm hoping to be out at Gen Con again next year, and uh, you know hope to meet up and see you there. We should definitely get a drink next year. Okay, that's great. All right, well, until then, I'll say cheerio and thanks very much, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Continuing on with the Cool of Cthulhu panel, this was recorded by Keeper Dan of the Miskatonic University podcast, or as I should call them now, the Gold Any Award-winning Miskatonic University podcast. So I hope there's a recording of this panel out there uh, because both... Chris and Sam spoke really well and fielded some really difficult questions very eloquently. And Sam is also one of the people behind Meta Arcade. I've not played it yet, but uh, from what I understand, Meta Arcade are the people who put out Cthulhu Chronicles. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So Cthulhu Chronicles is an app that basically allows you to play a number of published Call of Cthulhu scenarios, single player, uh, on your phone or tablet or whatever. Yeah, I mean, there are a number of classic modules that have been published so far, aren't there? Yeah, the solo adventures, Alone Against the Flames and so on, and Alone but, Against the Dark. Yeah, but also things like Paper Chase and I think mm. Edge of Darkness. And... and I believe they started off with Tunnels and Trolls adventures, Tunnels and Trolls being very much in the, the solo adventures thing from years gone by. Well, without further ado, let's have a chat with Sam and find out some more. So I'm pleased to be joined by Sam Reardon. Hello, Sam. Hey, hey, Paul. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So I had the pleasure of meeting you at Gen Con. And, you know, how was your Gen Con? You've been there before or was that your first one or? Oh, it was my second. Um, my second overall and my second with Meta Arcade. So last year we debuted our first product, Tunnels and Trolls Adventures. And um, I was there to sort of help with the launch for that. Um, I did some work on that game. And um, then this year, I was a full-time employee, and I got to be there for the launch of Cthulhu Chronicles, which was super exciting. Um, and I got a little, yeah, I got a little spare time of my own, um, which was also pretty cool. Um, I went to a few RPG play sessions, which was interesting. I got to see a lot more of the con space than I even knew was there. And I, I basically just walked around the entire floor, which I didn't, I didn't have time to do uh, last year. Uh, but I picked up a lot of swag and a lot of Christmas presents. Um, so pretty excited to have all that out of the way. 
Oh, that's pretty cool. It does take a while walking around that floor, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Especially with the the, the crowds that were there a few days, um, especially around some merch tables. It was uh, it was a lot of waiting just to try to get to the front. Right. Yeah. Because I stopped one point in the middle and I looked and in the far distance to the left, you could see the far wall and then you turn around and equally far away, you can see the right hand wall. Yeah. It's just huge. Um, from the Chaosium booth, you couldn't even see like the far corner of like the, the, like the Southeast corner of the, the space. You couldn't even see it from where we were. I don't think. <laughs> um, yeah. So tell us, tell the listeners about Cthulhu Chronicles. Sure. Um, so Cthulhu Chronicles is a mobile game um, currently on iOS only, but we're working on Android um, very rapidly and with a lot of urgency. It's basically um, interactive fiction meets a classic RPG gameplay. So it, it should feel a lot like a solo uh, Call of Cthulhu experience. Um, we've adapted a lot of adventures from Call of Cthulhu directly, like um, Alone Against the Flames, for example, which is originally a solo adventure anyway. That was very easy to adapt. Uh, and then we've taken um, a few others like Crimson Letters, Edge of Darkness, and we've sort of repackaged them a little bit, um, restructured them to make the gameplay uh, make more sense for our product. Um, but there's a lot of characters, a lot of a lot of plot, a lot of setup that players will recognize if they know Call of Cthulhu. There's some original material in there as well to tie the whole narrative together. And can you go from one scenario to another with the same character? Yeah, so we've we have six characters to choose from. They all have different sort of specialties and backgrounds. Um, you choose one at the start of each adventure and you can play through all of them with the same character or with different characters. Different characters collect clues as you go on, which are kind of like achievements. They help you with uh, later adventures and, and with um, like skill checks and discoveries later on. So each character has their own sort of tracking that way. Uh, but you're welcome to switch between them as well. And you've also adapted Blackwater Creek by our very own Scott Dorwood. <laughs> yep. Um, Blackwater Creek was, um, it was actually sort of one of the key adventures when we were, I, I sat down with Neil, actually, um, uh, Neil, Alexi and I, Alexi's our head of content development. We all sat down and for a couple hours just sort of hashed out what we wanted to focus on for the story, um, for this first arc and Blackwater Creek um, stuck out to us and it <laughs> I'm trying to tiptoe around a bunch of spoilers <laughs> sure but uh it basically it forms the the backbone of a certain character's backstory and you return there to have everything sort of unfold in the finale of the first campaign so it, it's it's pretty cool it brings in a lot of stuff from earlier adventures so th there's there's some fun new stuff for people who have maybe already played. Um, the Call of Cthulhu, uh, Blackwater Creek. We've added and and changed a lot of stuff, so hopefully it'll it'll feel um, you know familiar, but also new. I look forward to playing that. I am on Android, so do you know? Uh, I, I know you said you're working at that with urgency, and I'm sure everybody says, "When is it coming?" But oh gosh, do you have any time scale for that, or is it just as soon as we can? It, it very soon before the end of the year. Um, I mean, but 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 much sooner than that, I think. Yeah, we're currently just kicking the tires as much as we can internally because when we launched Tunnels and Trolls Adventures, we launched on iOS and Android and we had a lot of issues on Android because, I mean, the systems are so different. Uh, you never know what people are running with. 
So we're trying to really cover all our bases this time. So when we do launch with Android, we don't have any of the problems that, we, that we've that uh, we encountered with other products. Yeah, I'm sure it's better to wait and get it right than release something, you know, because the internet is going to hate you if it doesn't work right. Yeah, that's that's what we're uh, that's what, certainly what we're we're going with. And you mentioned Tunnels and Trolls, which is also famous for all its solo modules. So that's where it started out. Yeah, um, it started with our CEO David. Um, he has this vision for a creator that anyone can use to create interactive uh, RPG adventures. It's the it's the sort of um, the goal of the company, and we've been. Um, working on these projects to sort of prove that theory and also test the software. Um, so we use this creator internally to create um, adventures for these games and um, bridge the gap between engineering and narrative. But Tunnels and Trolls, we started with that because David, it was one of his favorite games as a kid. Um, he grew up playing it. And so when he was thinking about, well, you know, so sort of what properties make the most sense to adapt, which properties, you know, are compatible with our goals. Tunnels and Trolls came up because, I mean, like you said, they their whole thing was that they had a lot of solo play adventures. They, they had multiplayer as well, obviously, but their big selling point was uh, solo adventures and still is. Yeah, so so it, it made perfect sense for us to uh, to adapt that because it, it's it's a lot easier to adapt more specific material like that um, than to. Um, to adapt sort of the looser, for example, Call of Cthulhu scenarios where- Like, like a standard scenario, sure. Yeah, exactly. Where, where sort of you have the setting, you have the characters, you have an outline of the plot, and then it's up to you to sort of create a path through that um, by anticipating what a player would do or would want to do. So so yeah, it, it's interesting, the sort of different uh, techniques that we use to adapt different kinds of scenarios. And what's your role personally in the process? Well, so- I started out just as a, a, a content specialist uh, for Tunnels and Trolls Adventures. I actually started out part time, just adapting an adventure or two every you know month or two, and then I was brought on full time, and I got to really dig in. and I created a style guide for adapting these adventures. So, because we do so much adaptation and rewriting and and new writing, it's important to to be able to have a touchstone for what the style is of the original IP so that we can sort of mimic that and play with it with some degree of awareness rather than just sort of taking shots in the dark. Um, So I created a style guide, a technical writing guide, which is sort of best practices for writing for mobile and specifically for our engine. Uh, And then I also did a lot of writing myself. And then on Cthulhu, I did all of the writing or at least all of the adapting. I So I, I did all of the words on screen for Adventures 2 through 9, and then some of the words on screen for Adventure 1, which um, is Alone Against the Flames is a solo. Uh, so that was a much more one-to-one adaptation. So most of the text in there is directly from the original, and we've just sort of reworked it and restructured it and added uh, bits and pieces there, uh, here and there, to flesh it out into something for our platform. But yeah, that's, that's what I do. I... Um, I'm the uh, content lead currently, so I've sort of stepped up into a uh, a managerial role moving forward, which is interesting. All right, well that's been a that's been a great discussion. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Sam. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me. And uh, hope to see you again at maybe at Gen Con next year. Yeah, or somewhere else. Who knows? But yeah, hopefully at Gen Con at least. A brief update: since this interview, Cthulhu Chronicles is now available on Android. 
You mentioned just before that interview the Ennies. Yes, indeed. It was uh, an interesting year in the Ennies this year and quite a big year for Cthulhu-related products as well as Chaosium winning quite a few Ennies. Well, that's um, been the case for the last few years. Well, I'm, I guess so. Yeah. Well, and Chaosium had a massive year back in 2017. In 2016, it was Pale Grain with Trail of Cthulhu. So Cthulhu has been dominating the Ennies for a while now. Chaosium picked up six Ennies, including... The Silver Any for Fans' Choice of Best Publisher, which was quite a prestigious one, I think. And Greg Stafford got up on stage and gave a very heartfelt speech, which will include a small excerpt from right now. I'm Greg Stafford. I'm a gamer. When I started Chaosium in 1975... Uh, there were probably fewer people at the Gen Con that year than are in this room today. Uh, we never imagined uh, truly that it would reach the magnitude that it has today. Went through a long period of being some strange thing that uh, just random geeks did to being truly mainstream like it is today. I figure when role-playing games get on uh, X-Files and The Simpsons, we've made it. I want to uh, thank the current Chaosium crew for the rejuvenation of Chaosium in the recent past. Uh, we went through some dark times. It's nice to be back in the light again. I've had a lot of people come up to me this uh, convention and thank me for the uh, imaginative and creative things that uh, Chaosium has done. <coughs> but it's true that uh, it's not us. We're a bunch of obsessive, compulsive, detail-minded uh, game designers, people looking desperately for a job that doesn't make them wear a tie to work, artists who have, uh, would have never had a market other without our industry. And uh, we all do a lot of work, but in fact, we're just a small handful of people, and truly the phenomenon that we have today is not due to us, but it is due to you. Uh, the fans and the players, we really appreciate everything you've done. Uh, we appreciate your imagination and your, your keen sense of appreciation for all our games and uh, for all of the Chaosium crew and everybody that, uh, uh, who's not going to come up here. I want to say thank you to all of you fans. Thank you. Well, speaking of Cthulhu things dominating the Ennies, I mean, there were two others as well on top of the Chaosium stuff. Well, you mentioned Chris Spivey's success with Harlem Unbound, mm. but even more successful than that was Delta Green. Yeah, Delta Green picked up six awards with the, the revamp of the whole Delta Green system and all the books they've got out. And of course, the other big winner uh, was Lamentations of the Flame Princess, who again have done very well in recent years. In particular, it was uh, Zack Smith's Frostbitten and Mutilated that dominated, wasn't it? Yeah, they picked up four awards um, overall. And, well, probably no need for me to say any more about that. Let's once again go to a chat, and this time chat with Zack Smith. Okay, so I'm pleased to be joined by author and artist Zack Smith. Hi there, Zack. Hey, Paul. First off, I wanted to chat to you about Gen Con. How was Gen Con for you? And, you know, what's your schedule there? What, what do you get up to? I usually don't have any official things I do at Gen Con except 
go to the Ennies and root for uh, whoever, you know, our friends. But I usually go and then I wake up whenever I wake up and head over to the LTFP booth, Lamentations of the Flame Princess, and try to, like, hawk the wares because James is, like, the world's most awkward salesman because he, you know... He's just like, oh, weird fantasy role playing. Uh, here you go. And he just hands everyone a flyer and they're like, that's weird. And, you know, <laughs> um, I mean, he does fine, I guess, at other cons when I'm not around. But everyone is just like, James, you know, hawk this stuff, you know. So I usually, you know, do a pitch and and then people know to meet me at the booth. So I don't I don't do panels. I don't do, you know, like any like programmed events. I just do that all day. And then at night we might get together a game, you know, and, and just play. But Gen Con is usually really fun for me, partially because of that. Like a lot of people who are uh, designers, they book up with a lot of official events and then they end up just doing those and then just trying to press in seeing people when they can. And I'm just like, no, I'm just here and you can come find me and then we'll make our own event. I don't know how long that'll last, but that's kind of where I'm at. I guess it'll last as long as you want it to, right? It's just Yeah, I mean, right. I mean, I guess sooner or later, you know, like there might be official responsibilities, but I just think like if you can just be like, come see Zach and James and Stokely and whoever is hanging out at the LOTF booth is an event for other people, then we can just sort of sit, sit where we are and do that. Although it does a little bit suck because I can't really shop, you know, like I can't go, ooh, look at that. They get a first edition of that over there. So uh, Frostbitten and Mutilated at the end is won four awards. I was surprised. Really? Yeah, I mean, you tend to do pretty well at the end is, and deservedly so. Now, Frostbitten and Mutilated, could you tell our listeners a little bit about what that is? Basically, Frostbitten and Mutilated is a, it's not a hex crawl exactly, but it's a, you know, it's a rectangle crawl. So it's a sort of setting slash adventure for a sort of Viking Amazon setting with a lot of black metal vibes, um, Ragnarok, which is, and then the main idea is that there's this sort of area of the world where everything is as it was at the dawn of time that mythically, you know, so all the animals can talk or they can understand what you're doing and they have, you know, mythic motives, you know, like the wolves just want to kill They'll, they want to kill a, a party member and and then get away. So rather than like being afraid of fire, like in a normal game or like just like being hungry, they're like there to like find like, you know, make your life worse. Um, you know, the worms are intelligent and they're like trying to eat your flesh and eat your gear. And, and there's frost giants and all the kind of basically I just read through the the Norse sagas and then put the sort of layer of of metalness on top. And then the other idea was that the, the only humans that have settled there are these warrior women, the Amazons who have, they're sort of like got away from urbanized civilization so they could have their own uh, world. And so they're the sort of warring clans of all women warriors. And they've also collected like these herbs that are uh, abortifacient, um, uh, herbs. So basically women who live in the cities, who live in civilization, who want to get an abortion will travel to the devoured land and try to like 
negotiate with these tribes to get one and then come back. So there's like a sort of ready-made reason to go in there and adventure besides just treasure, which also there's that, you know. And the player characters take the role of these warrior women as well? They can. There's player characters like, you know, it's in it. You, you can stick it in any kind of, you know, fantasy setting. So anybody can go in there. But we made a couple classes. We made a witch class and an Amazon class, which are basically like an old school LOTFP version of a barbarian and a sort of weird warlocky witch class. But the idea I always have is that if you die in one of these weird modules, you should be able to make your new character as being like one of the weird things that you've run into, you know? And the other thing was that uh, in the last couple of years, what we've been doing, like me and Jeff Reince and a couple other people have been making these, they're classes that are old school style, you know, with the low hit points and not many extras, but at each level, rather than just getting a standard, you know, more hit points where your saves go up, you roll a D100. So you might get that, but instead of the normal progression, you might get, a little special bit like you know every time you hit a you know human-sized opponent you have a chance of knocking them over or something like that so it's something slightly feet like but it's random at each level and so you end up getting these sort of slightly weird slightly off-center fighters and wizards you know they're not like it's a 60 or 70 percent chance of just getting the normal progression but there are these little extra widgets so that it kind of gives you those cool extra bits that you get in later editions or other games, but it's hard to game the system and try and, you know, and make like these sort of game breaking characters. So those have been optional and we put one in red and pleasant land. And so we put it, the, the witch and the Amazon in this one are that too. Sweet. And so that, that was this year. What have you got coming up next for us? Have you got new projects that you're working on? Yeah. I'm demon city, which is the modern horror game which i just finished the kickstarter on the art and writing is done on on demon city and so the kickstarter pays for distribution and the layout and stuff like that and paying the the stretch goal writers who wrote little bits for me and then i just started uh, there's a secret project for lotfp um and then a non-secret project for lotfp uh, lamentations which is a uh, it's a hundred short adventures like one page one spread adventures set in lamentations like weird 17th century adventure and also i'm working on a version now that i've done you know writing demon city the horror game somebody wanted a superhero version of that system so i'm gonna write and draw a superhero game this year and see how that comes out so busy a lot of stuff but one other thing was like um I really like one thing we do at Gen Con is, is late night. I, there's usually a beer and pretzels game at some point where we just run at the bar. And I usually run a, a player versus player uh, D&D version. So because there's usually lots of people who want to play and it's usually pretty loud. And, you know, and so you split everybody up into two teams. And then I make on index cards like little rooms and then like slowly lay out the rooms for either side of the table. And so they slowly get closer to, to each other, but they don't find each other right away. Uh, and that's always fun at Gen Con to like, cause that, that game somehow just like works ideally for that format. And when they do find each other, it's like all out war or <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Like it's like five people and five people or four people and four people. And it's just like, you're trying to kill each other, but it always ends up pretty weird. Cause I put in like, you know, 
warps where you go from one place to another. There's weird equipment, you know, or there's a pig in this room. What do you do with the pig? So it's the dungeon's just weird enough. But the nice thing about games that are player versus player is they're sort of self GMing. You don't have to keep inventing incident. The players do it for you. So that's always a big deal. And of course, the Ennies are always like epic drama. But, you know, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I was really surprised that Red and, or that Frostbitten Emulated won anything because, um, well, not anything, but it just didn't feel like any bait. You know, Red and Pleasant Land and Maze of the Blue Medusa both had a real arty vibe. They were a little, you know, kind of restrained and uh, there were there were obvious avant-garde things going on. Whereas, like, I felt like Frostbitten and Mutilated, it's called Frostbitten and Mutilated. And it's like these, like, warrior Amazon-like women wearing almost no clothes. And I just thought, like, it would be really easy for, a, you know, a critical audience to just sort of be like, eh, we've given Zach enough awards. <laughs> you know, like, and it, it was in black and white, like... I, you know, I, th I thought it could just kind of be interpreted as sort of like more OSR stuff, but I guess people liked it. So. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Zach. And I look forward to talking to you again on our episode about Red and Pleasant Land. Cool. Thanks for talking to me, Paul. Obviously, as well as all the people who win awards, there are people behind the scenes in the Ennies as well, people like the judges. And I must admit, I've never really given much thought to who it is who judges these things. But you, you met one of them, didn't you, Paul? Yeah, so just in the bar on the Sunday evening, there was one Australian guy that had stood out to me in his speech <laughs> just because he dropped so many F-bombs and swan uh, <laughs> oh. so much. I, yeah, and was quite this, this is coming from someone who records with me and Matt. Well, yeah. Um, get, re really, I, I watched the feed and, yeah, the guy was worse than you. <laughs> Oh, yeah. It was, yeah. <laughs> no better response. He was really kind of warm with it. He was really kind of, you know, really, really fun. Um, and I said to him, you know, dude, you should be like presenting it next year. So I asked him, you know, how did you get to be judge? You know, what do you work for in the industry or whatever? And he's, oh, no, I'm just a fan of the books. And I was like, well, sorry, what do you mean? You know, are you with a company or something? He's like, no, 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 you can't be with a company. You just have to be unaffiliated and just a fan. And then the judges get voted in. Now, I knew there was a system for voting the judges in, but I didn't realise, and it makes complete sense now, I consider it, right? But the judges for the Ennies are fans, not writers or publishers or anything like that. Well, that makes perfect sense to me. I mean, not only because of the conflict of interest aspect mm. of it, but because who's going to care more about the books? Yeah, so that raised the Ennies in my opinion, I suppose, really. It seems a, a, very, uh, a very good way of doing it. Now, one of the things that always gets me, I know, from going to conventions is we find listeners in the wild. <laughs> yeah, sure did. There was a whole bunch of people that I met like on the Thursday, because uh, I was on the Chaosium stand just talking to people about the books and so on. So people would come up and, you know, we'd chat and maybe they listen to the show or whatever. But I didn't, at that point, I wasn't taking note of their names, so... Please excuse me if I've forgotten your name in this in this list. But of the people that I met, I met with Robin Hood Dial II, Kevin Glazner, Nathan Van Kirk, Noah Lloyd and Matt Ryan, Dan Dom, Randy Keeling, and had coffee with Matt Young. Uh, didn't you say as well that Robin Hood Dial II actually showed you his driving licence? Yeah, to prove that that is actually his name. And he seemed quite proud of that. And, and it yeah. is a good name. Yeah, well, I, I, I think I think anyone would be proud of a name like that. Yeah. 
Like, it's obviously good enough that it's been passed down through two generations. <laughs> well, indeed. Like, well, either that or he's a clone. He's got to play a ranger, right? Well, it's paranoid. Robin Hood is a, a ranger. Oh, yeah, yes. Sorry, I, I was trying to follow on from the clone aspect of oh, it. Oh, I see. Yeah, kind and, of paranoia uh, was, ranger well, mashup. I, th- I was thinking, were you saying he was the clone ranger? Oh. <laughs> also met up with three people, neither of whom were called Dave or Gary. The relevance of this will become apparent. They have a podcast, the Dave and Gary podcast. Which I assume is a reference to Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax. Do you know what? On first meeting them, that totally, I failed to ask them that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm guessing so. Um, I was thinking but, you know, more of a John from Cincinnati. His name's not John and he's not from Cincinnati. <laughs> <laughs> and if you head over to DaveandGary.com, you can give their podcast a listen. It was a pleasure to meet them. Yeah, hope to see them again. And I guess, in amongst all this meeting people and panels and awards and stuff like that, occasionally at Gen Con, there, there's some games going on, aren't there? So I've heard. I don't know what the deal is with that, really. Nah. Games? Who, who wants to do that? <laughs> okay. Well, when you could be at St. Elmo's? Mm. So... <laughs> <laughs> you bastard fricker. <laughs> Look what you've Look, done it's to it's just him. a steakhouse, okay? It's just a steakhouse, Matt. It's just steak a steakhouse. Out. Anyway, so I ran my scenario Full Fathom 5, sort of set on a whaling ship in the 1850s, and I ran that for a group uh, one morning, and then I I kind of messed up with getting Keeper Dan into the game. I was hoping he'd turn up. We had a bit of a, a failure, probably more on my part of uh, logistics. So I ran it again on the Saturday afternoon up in the hotel room, and it was like really nice and quiet. So I had Chad and Dan from the Miskatonic University podcast, I had Noah Lloyd and our friends Corey and Steve in on it as well. So it was, it was a really fun game. And at the end, Mike Mason turned up and took the role of the captain just for like the last 10 minutes, which was on a cameo role. And, and did everyone keelhaul him? Oh, yeah, we did our best. And on the Sunday, I went really old school and played some Tunnels and Trolls, which was... I, uh, yeah, I've never actually played Tunnels and Trolls. What is it that makes Tunnels and Trolls interesting? I think because it's just more fun and it is really old school i think more like old school D was in the 70s we were sat around waiting for the game to start and one of the players opposite me says you know i've played a lot of D games here people take it really seriously and he was kind of hmm. a bit downhearted about that and then we played tunnels and trolls and it was a good game but there was a lot of laughing and a lot of fun and a lot of kind of meta stuff going on so we found the uh the manual for all the monsters, the, the <laughs> kind of employees' manual they're all supposed to read and stuff like this. So it was, it was good fun. It was a really fun game. <laughs> now, there is a lot of Cthulhu gaming goes on at Gen Con, and there are a few different groups that run Cthulhu games there. Much as in the UK with Mike Mason, we used to have the Cult of Keepers, there's a group over there called You Too Can Cthulhu, run by Bob Geis, uh, who I had the pleasure of having dinner with. Yeah, I'd like to just have a chat with Bob about that group and how he set it up and, you know, maybe explore how anybody who's interested could do that too. So you're saying that you too can, you too can Cthulhu? We all go together, goo goo All right, let's talk to Bob. Okay, so I'm pleased to be joined by Bob Geis of You 2 Can Cthulhu. Hi, Bob. Uh, hello, Paul. Thank you very much for letting me take part in this. Oh, you're very welcome. Yeah. So um, how was your Gen Con? Uh, this year was fantastic. Uh, we had a lot of success. 
Uh, all of our games were very well received. So it was a fantastic show. So your group, U2 Can Cthulhu, they run games at conventions. I mean, how many games did you run at Gen Con? Do you know? Uh, this year we ran around 25 sessions. Oh, wow. For Chaosium. And uh, it was a lot of work, but it went very, very well. And how many people do you have like in your whole, uh, I don't know what you call it, uh, group, society? A couple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we probably have, uh, I would say, close to uh, about a dozen uh, individuals that run games with us at Gen Con. It may seem like a lot of individuals partaking, but most of our games we run with two uh, game masters. Yeah, that intrigues me. So, um, you know, can you tell us a little bit about how that works with two GMs? Essentially, one GM will act as the primary GM. Uh, they will do the overall narration and, and do the, most of the actual administering of the rules and setting the scenes and that sort of thing. The assistant GM will do breakouts with players and do scenes where the party may split and uh, allow for a little bit greater degree of interaction. Also, in times when there's interaction between NPCs, it really makes it helpful to have two GMs to kind of play that up. Mm. So are there sometimes like script, well, if you like kind of scripted parts, you know, parts of or scenes of the, in the scenario that the second keeper kind of knows they're going to run that's a kind of complementary part, or is it just improvised on the hoof? Uh, we put a lot of preparation into our events. So we usually have set uh, vignettes where we will have uh, prepared uh, segments that we're, we know we're going to have two GMs kind of orchestrate that out. And of course, there's stuff on the fly as well. Right, right. And looking, um, I'm not sure if it's on YouTube or somewhere, I was looking at videos of some of your games running. And yeah, I mean, it kind of looked more like a LARP. There were like lights out and people got head torches or something and there was music and there were sounds and people were moving around the room. Would you say you branch into, you cross into LARP? Oh, absolutely. Well, what you saw there, Paul, that was um, that was on our Facebook page, the YouTube and Cthulhu Facebook page. And we um, typically have lots of video. And that was our Black Letter event, which is the final event of Gen Con, which is uh, a 12-player event. And it's we, we almost had a one-to-one relationship with between GM and player there. So there's a lot of stuff going on. And that one is certainly a LARP. And how long does that game last? Uh, it's set for four hours. Those games typically run a little bit quick, so it's typically over in about three, three and a half. Oh, okay. Yeah. And is that a standard game length for you? Uh, no, typically typically our sessions are four hours. We do have some games that run five. And do you, the same keepers that run the games, do they also author the scenarios or who writes the scenarios that you run? Uh, we typically author our own games, so they're originals. Right. And do you each run the thing you've written or do you shuffle that around and, and you sort of tell people what they're running or how do you operate that? No, that's a great question, Paul. Typically, we each author does run their own games. We have certain scenarios that which are interchangeable that others will run. But typically, the author is the author of their own product and gets to really take it wherever they want. It sounds great. Well, certainly. And one of the things, uh, you know, I, I should I should say is that I really have, I'm fortunate to have a team of very, very talented individuals to help me. It's certainly not all about me. It's really about what they bring. And uh, without them, uh, there would be no YouTube and Cthulhu. You know, you've got this group and you go around to how many conventions do you go to in, in the States? So we will be going this year to uh, Game Hole Con, uh, Gary Con. Uh, obviously Gen Con, and there's a local convention here in the States, uh, Hoosier Con, which we will also attend. 
So th- would you offer any advice for people, maybe not necessarily in the States, but around the world in other countries that, you know, if they were looking to set up a group like this? Well, what we did, we really started out very small. And I think that that was very successful for us. Our focus was just on running uh, and designing scenarios that were really good scenarios and players would enjoy. And we, uh, once we felt that we could, you know, deliver that to players, we expanded and grew from that. And I think that it's, uh, you know, it's self-perpetuating at that point. I mean, if you're running good games and players are enjoying it, they'll want to join your group. And essentially, that's what we've done, uh, Paul. Most of the people that uh, have uh, that have allowed us to grow have actually been participants in our games who have wanted to join because of what they experienced. And so I think that that's a good model to employ. And you mentioned black letter games. Now, this yes. is a kind of an invite-only game at the end of the convention. Is that right? Well, okay, so what we did, essentially, how it all started is we uh, decided we wanted to run a game that was essentially off the books at Gen Con. And this was years and years and years ago. Uh, We decided we would just do this and we would allow players to vote on who they thought was the best player for their group was. And then we would throw this kind of ad hoc game at the end of Gen Con for those players. And from that origin, it kind of spiraled into something that is officially on the books now. So yeah, it's it's uh, it is a player uh, chosen event uh, where the players choose who the best player was, and they uh, then will join us on Sunday for that game. Yeah, because I mean, the issue with running a game off the books at Gen Con is actually getting space to run it, of course. Yeah, but this was years and years ago, so it was a little bit different now. So uh, it's much easier to do in the official uh, sense now. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, no, cool. And um, do you have plans for next year yet, or is that you know that's a quite a way off? Oh, absolutely. I I am a helpless planner. I can't help but do it. Are you? (laughs) That's good. Um, So I'm I'm actually, as we speak, I'm looking at my spreadsheet now of all the different games that we're going to be running next year and how it's all going to play out. And I'm I'm really excited about next year already. Uh, We're going to be bringing in a bunch of new games that uh, no one played before. So I couldn't be more excited about it already. Oh, fabulous. Okay. Well, um, I'm hoping to be back at Gen Con next year, so maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll get to game with you. That'd be that'd be fab. Oh my gosh, that would be that would be fantastic, Paul. I'd love the game with you and Mike. Uh, are you GMing as well, Bob, or are you just sort of like overseeing it all? Well, you know, sadly enough, uh, my my oversight oversight activities do not preclude me from running games, so people are still be subjected to what I have to offer. Okay, well, marvelous. Okay, well, thanks very much, Bob, and uh, look forward to seeing you again. Absolutely, Paul. Thank you so much for this. One thing I heard that I'm very sorry to have missed again uh, is the HBLHS turned up for the first time. They did indeed. They were on the stand. It was kind of like the footprint of the Chaosium stand also included the HPLHS stand and the Cthulhu Chronicles. They were all kind of in the same area together. So was this Andrew and Sean? Yeah, Andrew and Sean were both there. And one of the days, Andrew was showing off the robes from the deluxe prop set. Now, this is a very limited edition product. And so he was there in like the black robes. And yeah, we did get a view of some of the products that are going into the deluxe set but i'm sworn not to talk about those but they're pretty cool yeah. this this is the deluxe prop set for masters in the after the tip that they've currently not put up for pre-order on the website is that the one you're talking about yeah uh-huh i've been keeping my eye on that yes the hp lovecraft historical society 
had the prop sets for sale on the stand and da -da -da -da, I've got one right here. That Ooh. is bigger than I thought that was going to be. That's pretty big, right? <laughs> Check that out. It, for, so it's a box. It's a serious box. It, for, for size comparison, for those who can't see it, uh, it's about the same kind of size as the base set for Arkham Horror. Yeah, for, from I'd Fantasy say Flight so. Games. Yeah. And just briefly opening it up. My God, Paul, what's that crawling out of the box? <laughs> close it, close it. You fool, you oh, doomed us all. It's packing paper. It's all right, it's just a matchbox. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> I, I don't know what came over me there. What? Are there in patches in there? Check it out. Bloody hell. Now that's attention to detail. There, there's even a striking edge on the map. Bloody hell. <laughs> That's so you can burn your old edition of Master Mark <laughs> Yeah. Before you play the new one. You won't need so. the old one anymore. Yeah. Well, so you can cremate all the dead investigators, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, it's more than just papers as well, then. Yeah. Oh. oh, yeah, you've got the wax cylinder in there, haven't you? You've got a wax cylinder Edison record, but inside the, the little box you've got something Edison didn't think of to include... Is that, is that a, a memory chocolate stick. bar? <laughs> <laughs> a memory stick with uh, handouts done as audio. Ah. This looks like a couple of is that a couple of scrolls bound together as well. You got passports. Oh wow! And yeah, this is not scrolls. This is one scroll. Check this out. <laughs> oh wow! So, so that's a silk scroll written in Chinese. Mm, very shiny rollers and everything that's really you, cool. you got to read it out Paul uh, maybe later and there are maps and there are all these little stickers that you can put into your passport if you travel around the world <laughs> <laughs> like anyone is going to deface their prop set by actually using it wow that, that is much much bigger than I thought that was going to be so the, the pictures that were posted up online didn't really have any sense of scale so I've just passed Scott the section for Peru because it comes in with section dividers with handouts for each area, for each chapter. What do you make of that, Scott? That's, this is rather wonderful. Gosh. <laughs> Even when you've got a newspaper clipping, you've got the yep. stuff on the reverse. And yeah. the newspaper clippings actually feel like newspaper clippings yeah. with print on the other side. It just looks like it's been cut out of a genuine newspaper yep there's the telegram from augustus larkin uh oh gosh with a back print that is actually a period peruvian telegram form <laughs> bloody hell uh yeah the route maps uh oh gosh yes. tear out from a note from a ring bound notebook yeah yeah the notes written by uh trinidad rizzo and maps wow oh this is very cool Bloody hell. <laughs> if I'd known people were going to make these handouts look so pretty, I would have put more work into them. <laughs> <laughs> yep, this is a letter... Oh, yes, letter to Jackson Elias from the, uh, the Widner Library in Harvard. I mean, oh. could that look any more real? Yeah, yes. I mean, it's, it's even franked and... Oh, gosh, and, yeah, the, the postmark and everything. Oh, yeah. Now, that, that is an amazing box of wonders. Well, as wonderful as Gen Con was, I don't think you're going to be able to top that box. No, that was a very cool thing. And indeed, could any game ask for a better set of props than that? I don't no. know. You know, <laughs> I don't think you'd look a long way before you found anything better than that. Except perhaps for the deluxe set. Meanwhile, on social media... 
I hear again that some people have been talking about us on social media, uh, particularly on iTunes, where Gnome Monk has been leaving us some comments. New adventures on and off the gaming table. The good friends have a lot to answer for. I started listening to improve my keeping, but it's gone far beyond that now. Thanks to them, I've discovered the works of Thomas Ligotti, the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast, and the London Fortean Society. Cheers, guys! I do wonder, I, I did meet a listener at the London Fortean Society talk. We didn't have long to speak, we just sort of met in the entrance, and he, he spotted the fact that I was wearing a Good Friends of Jackson Lyle's t-shirt, and I just wonder whether this is the same chap. I, I think his Was he three was, foot tall in brown robes? No, no, not quite. He was, I, I think, about six foot five, so a very tall gnome. Okay. And if I remember correctly, his name was Adam, though I, I wouldn't swear to that. But if, if that was you, thank you. And even if it wasn't you, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for, for leaving that review. And if anyone else feels moved to leave us a review, we would deeply, deeply appreciate it. Because not only do these, these reviews boost our, our fragile egos, but they also help new listeners find the show, improve our rankings on, on various applications, and, and generally let the world know all about the podcast. And we've had a lot of feedback about our recent episode on insanity in the works of H.P. Lovecraft. Quite a bit of this came out in the Call of Cthulhu Facebook group. And we'll link to the discussion from our show notes at blasphemoustomes.com. Whereas back in the land of G+, Evelyn M. says, Could a scientific discovery really turn someone insane? Learning something from the news would create emotional distance. Maybe a scientific discovery could have a psychological impact on someone who researched the topic, who is already isolated or alienated, whose work may have some major impact but is disregarded. They could end up having a lot of self-doubt and paranoia, a bit like people going down the rabbit hole with conspiracy theories or pseudoscience. Yeah, kind of a Crawford Tillinghast, you know, discovery of science, of finding out about the beyond. It's in that little... Uh world of his that's pretty mind-blowing but um doesn't necessarily reach the, the greater world i suppose and and, probably, yeah. and those kind of things you know it's kind of national inquirer type headlines aren't they that we tend to dismiss yeah and i can see that that dismissal being even worse because like, let's say that you have discovered something about the mythos that you realize poses say an existential threat to humanity but of course it sounds so utterly bizarre that no one is ever going to believe you you're going to end up sounding like you know some uh, paranoid conspiracy theorist online or some some crazy shouting on a street corner trying to warn the world that monsters are coming from beyond the stars to devour us i mean pff, how would you react if you encountered such a person well, you'd probably either get locked up or start a new religion. And Martin Kleinburst, also on Facebook, said, uh, No one appears to get heated or upset over games reducing the staggering complexity of health to hit points. And this is an interesting point, and it's an angle that I hadn't quite anticipated, which is, obviously, we feel very passionately about you know, mental health and, and the depiction of insanity, but... You know, physical trauma is a very real thing. People get messed up for life by taking damage, um, you know, by getting shot, by getting hit by cars. And to reduce that to hit point loss, and then, you know, more than that, to have it abstracted in such a way that, you know, the recovery is dealt with in such a way that glosses over all that potential trauma. It's not something I've ever seen anyone complain about, but I can see why someone might. 
And Alan Roger on Facebook says, I've never seen anyone correct the madness in Call of Cthulhu. I think it's pretty much agreed that this is mythos-related and not real-world madness. For example, a while back, while playing RuneQuest, a PC took an arrow to the chest and a brief discussion of treatment of hemopneumothorax, that's easy for you to say, occurred. No one has ever reached for or quoted the DSMV, which I find is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, 5th edition, while playing Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, this is the book that's put out by the American Psychiatric Association that lists, uh, for diagnostic purposes, a variety of mental disorders. And, I mean, it's always been a fairly controversial book, because it wasn't until fairly recently that they stopped listing, say, homosexuality as a, a mental disorder. Wow. Yeah, I think that went out with DSM-4. Um, I, I do actually have... Well, uh, yeah, edition wars, though, Scott. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm still using uh, DSM uh, edition three. Uh, it's okay. got a better uh, combat mechanics. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. The critical hit tables and that are just you know, uh, too much That's what it's me. all about, though. Doesn't it still use the resistance table? <laughs> uh, but but yeah, I do have uh, not not the full DSM five, but I've got the, the the sort of summarized version of it, which is actually fairly interesting reading. Do you bring it out during role play game sessions? No, but, but you I, I, now. I, I have looked at it for inspiration before. <laughs> right, good. Okay. So are you are you casting what Alan says uh, in into doubt that nobody ever. Uh, seeks to correct the madness of Call of Cthulhu by by consulting this book. No, I don't, because for the reasons we discussed in the you know the the, the previous episodes, I like the rest of us treat uh, madness in Call of Cthulhu as something very different. So I don't think the DSM has any role in it. But that said, I mean it, it is an interesting book. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It is that time, once again, when we thank you lovely, lovely people. Those people who have given us money via Patreon. The money you give us allows us to go on. It funds all the various costs associated with the podcast and keeps us on the air. So, thank you to each and every one of you. And while we're talking about those wonderful people who've backed us, we do offer inducements. We offer rewards. We bestow our bounty upon you. And the bounty that we're working on at the moment is issue four of the Blasphemous Tome. Matt, tell the people what they're going to win. The Blasphemous Tome, set now on its fourth edition, is an old school fanzine done in, I was going to say new school style, but no, it's pretty much old school. It's laid out in Korea. It's a set of articles and a scenario that will be in there following the same format as what we had last time round. Some things Cthulhu, some things not Cthulhu, some things very much from the 70s. Thanks to Paul. And is licensed by Chaosium, so it will include Call of Cthulhu stats and so on for the scenario. But it's all material that's designed to appeal to the kind of person who listens to our podcast. And if you're the kind of person who does listen to our podcast, which you probably are because you're listening to our podcast, you know what kind of person I'm talking about. And we... I was about to say we have someone new to thank, but no, we have something different this time. Uh Uh-oh. A little while back, we thanked a listener through the medium of what we laughably call song. And he contacted me a little while back to say that, as well as the normal insult we visit upon people's names by the act of singing, we made it worse in that we completely mispronounced his name. Hold on, if we're going to start correcting our mistakes, we could be opening the floodgates here. (laughs) This is a listener by the name of 
Alexi Mars. So we'd, I say we'd, I think I was probably responsible here. I'd assumed that it was pronounced Alexis Mays, uh, which is nothing, nothing like, like how it's pronounced. But by way of making it up to you, Alexi, we are going to redo your song. And I, I, I don't think we're going to treat your name any better, but we'll try at least to pronounce it right this time. Thank you, 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 What were your overall impressions of Gen Con? Apart from the fact that you, you, all, all the time you missed Matt and me and thought how much better the experience would be with us along. Yeah, that was my main thought that preoccupied me 24 hours a day. Uh, but aside from that, yeah, it was a great experience. Um, it was nice turning up there and knowing quite a few people like Dan and Chad from the Mr. Colonic University podcast, meeting like Noah Lloyd and Matt Ryan, um, you know, guys that we've been in touch with. Uh, and a selection of other people from the different companies that are on stands there. And just great getting to meet so many people, really. It was really nice. And I think one of the things I like about Gen Con, it's like 70,000 people. But standing in line for tickets or standing in line to get into the rooms, you know, you can just turn to the person at your shoulder and just chat to them. They might not be there for Call of Duty, right? They might be there for D&D or they might be there for board games or card games. But... They're all pretty friendly, and it's just a nice feeling of being there. Can I just say how profoundly English it is that your high point of Gen Con appeared to be queuing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was that was all right, Scott. Yeah, that was that was the that's what I go for the queues. Well, hopefully next time, perhaps all three of us can get out to Gen Con in Indianapolis next August. Who knows? We shall see. Until then, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com Now on to our main topic, lamenting not getting St. Elmo's this year. Hmm. <laughs> Do you want to give more fucking context than that, Sanderson? <laughs>